The Paralympics GB podcast with Hannah Cockcroft. Hello, I'm Hannah Cockcroft and this is the official Paralympics GB podcast. A show that gets under the skin of my fellow Paralympics GB athletes and discovers exactly what it's like to represent Great Britain on the world stage. Today, my guest is someone who has truly broken boundaries, forging a successful banking career which spans 24 years whilst also indulging in his love for football, where he represented his country on 144 occasions, including Paralympics GB at the London 2012 Paralympic Games, finding the back of the net 128 times on the pitch. He is now the head of Paralympics GB and continues to be an advocate for people with visual impairments and those living with disabilities. So let's explore the incredible journey of David Clark. Here we are, Dave. Welcome to the Paralympics GB podcast. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Very well indeed. Great to uh, be with you. Thank you very much for joining us. I know you're a very busy man, so I'll try not to take up too much of your time, but there's a lot to cover, to be honest, Dave. I've been um, Googling you like mad, and uh, there's a lot to talk about, so let's get cracking. I want to go right back to the beginning, if you can remember it. I know it was a long time ago, mate, but how did you get into football? So um, I was uh, born in Wigan in the northwest of England, and my mum and dad were both brought up in Liverpool. And uh, obviously Liverpool is very well known for its football. Uh, two clubs, Liverpool and Everton. And uh, for me, it was Liverpool. So first of all, born into a family that were absolutely crazy about football. And then I used to play football on the drive with my dad. Um, and uh, obviously at a young age back then, wasn't able to play for you know your local club or your local school. But I went to specialist schools in Liverpool and then Worcester uh, for visually impaired kids. And that was really where I got my opportunity to, to, first of all, learn about football and secondly, play. And I very vividly remember two things. First thing was that um, my teacher at primary school put ball bearings inside a ball so it would make a noise so we could hear it. So that was one great thing. And the second thing was going to secondary school. It was 12 to 18 year olds and mixture of blind and partially sighted and I remember being at the bottom of both of those kind of with no sight and about 12 years old and sort of having to fight for the right to to play football which kind of taught me how to control the ball really because it was only when I learned how to control the ball that anyone ever passed me the ball so um, <laughs> yeah so it's absolutely kind of just kind of over that young period really really getting into it but um, didn't ever actually get the chance to be coached in it or play it properly until I was 25 years old. Wow. That's um that's a big gap actually. And I didn't realise that there was that gap. I mean, you mentioned a teacher that put ball bearings into the ball there. I had a really similar experience with a teacher who I guess I could thank for being where I am now. You know, she she started adapting lessons. Um how important do you think it is for you that that teacher did that? You know, was that a massive step in into where you are now? Oh, absolutely. I mean you know, one of the things I really concentrate on these days is ensuring that those pathways exist for kids. So if you look at football now, you know, a disabled footballer, you can, you know, mostly join a club at five or six years old and go through the normal pathways. And it may look slightly different, but you will find your way through and you'll be picked up, whether that's just you want to just play for grassroots purposes and just to enjoy it, or you want to get on a talent program or whatever. Back in those days, there was nothing at all. And it took that initiative from that teacher to really kind of change the whole mindset about it. And I guess what I'm also conscious is it was a specialist school for the blind, you know, so I was very, very fortunate. So I was unfortunate in the sense that it meant being away from my parents. It meant not being in mainstream education with friends and, and, and those people from my community. 
But the positives were there were people there who actually understood what it was like you know, to, to teach people with sight loss and to try and innovate and find a way to help you get get involved. So yeah, uh, Ron De La Cruz was his name and uh, he made a huge difference in, in my life. And that was really um, the start of things, I suppose. Oh, shout out to Ron, what a legend. Absolutely. Yeah, he was a legend in more ways than one in terms of uh, just one of those kind of teachers that really, you know, enthused you about everything he did. You know, it was, it was brilliant. They're the teachers that I think need shouting about more. I love that story. Um, was it hard moving away from your parents so young? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I remember um, at three years old, I was happily playing in a sandpit at nursery and uh, an educational psychologist came along and said, the problem with David is he's bored. He wants to he wants to go to school. He wants to get educated. So there they took me away from my guinea pigs and my sandpit and sent me off to Liverpool to Wavertree Royal School for the Blind, where I used to go Monday to Friday and then come home at weekends. And um, yeah, I mean, that's that's tough, you know, uh, and really tough for my mum and dad. You know, they really didn't want to do that. They didn't want their three, you know, three and a half year old going off for a week to a completely separate part of the part of the part of the land to but but they took that really, what I think is a really brave decision and and had a massive impact on my life because although it upset them it broke their hearts and you know as a young kid I made sure it broke their hearts by crying every time they left me there but um, <laughs> <laughs> you know it was it was just such a critical decision at the time in making sure that I got access to the education and the social side and, you know, as we're talking about today, the sports side, which I would not have got at that time if I'd stuck around in mainstream education. I mean, the big question is at that point, moving to Liverpool, which team do you support then? Is it Liverpool or if it, is it Everton? <laughs> well, uh, it's definitely Liverpool. Um, yeah. Um, I had a brief... I'm sure flirt- there's people both cheering and booing at that, by the way. <laughs> Absolutely. I did have a brief flirtation with Everton because my granddad was an Everton fan. We were the kind of classic split family so half was Everton and half was Liverpool but my dad took me to an FA Cup semi-final he, he knew how to get under my skin so he, he took me to an FA Cup semi-final and I was in in with all the fans and that and it was uh, such a great experience so I then said to my dad hey you know, Liverpool's my team and uh, ever since then it's cost me an absolute fortune following them around <laughs> following around the country following them around Europe so uh, there you go thanks dad <laughs> Well, I'm sure, you know, he would never have expected that your career is, is where those initial games would have got to. I mean, is this what you thought you would get to? Three Paralympic Games, I, I actually, 128 goals, mm. which I'd like to inform you is one less than David Beckham. So that's that's disgusting, Dave, to be honest. You need to work <laughs> harder. Um, and 144 players for England, which is actually a lot more than David Beckham. He did 115. I've been Googling hard. Um, yeah. So that's a success. But did you ever imagine that that Ron putting those um, ball bearings in the ball, that all these different movements in your in your childhood would have led to the career that you had? Never. No. Um, it's incredible, like, you know, saying yes to things and, and like being positive about doing them has an unbelievable knock-on effect. So so had I not got involved as a kid, had that decision not been made, had I not played football at school, then when the opportunity finally arrived in 1995, when England and Great Britain 
had reacted to the fact that a set of rules, how world blind football would be played, got got put together and agreed on. And then we went through the process of selecting a team. If I hadn't put all those hours in and all that time in my teens to really perfect the, 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 the skills and spend time doing all of that, then I never would have been ready because actually for the first 10 years of my international sport career, I actually did a, a, won European Championships in athletics in Zurich in 1988. Hey, I, look at that. It's a small one. And I played 10 years of goal ball as well, uh, which culminated in the Atlanta Paralympics in 1996. So I, I, I wasn't even thinking about football. And then this opportunity arrived in 1995 and I just had to take it because notwithstanding the sort of backdrop of athletics and goal ball, football was my absolute passion. And when I came off the pitch after 2012 and retired, I, I just could not believe where it had landed at because, you know, London 2012 was kind of the, the, the pinnacle for me where blind football as a sport really, really landed within the Paralympic Games. It was its third Paralympic Games. It didn't feel like an add-on. It felt like something that was absolutely integral. Uh, I also got the opportunity to participate in the opening ceremony. Um, and, and just for me personally, it was just one of those moments where you look back and you think, of all those decisions, of all those people who've helped along the way, if any one of them had sort of not been present at any time, that whole sequence of events would never have happened. So, no, I do pinch myself. I do pinch myself. But um, it's just been such a such a journey. And the brilliant thing from my perspective is now, if you want to be a blind footballer at a grassroots, le grassroots level or professionally, that's open to you now, which it never was in my day. Do you think that you've pinched yourself more since you've retired? Do you do you look back on it more now that you're not out there on the pitch playing? Because I think that as an athlete, I just go from one race to the next. I don't really, mm. I don't think I really appreciate what I'm doing whilst I'm doing it. No. Were you appreciating it while you were there, or was it was is it kind of hindsight now where you're like, oh wow, I did that? Yeah, I think uh, it's more what other people say to you actually, because you know I think it's it's I mean we're supremely confident, or you know. We, we, we kind of need to be supremely confident on the field of play and we need to show no kind of weaknesses in our persona or how we or, or how people perceive us but the reality is that you don't spend a hell of a lot of time thinking about you and you know what you've done or all that kind of stuff and then when I retired um some amazing things happened so I got inducted into the National Football Museum Hall of Fame in Manchester which was probably the first kind of like, oh, wow, that's quite big. You know, like so Bobby Charlton, Gary Lineker, David Beckham, as you mentioned, and all these names and then me. Um, and then the most incredible thing happened. I got invited in January 2013 to be the guest of honour at the FA Cup final. And it was like, you look at the people who've done that in the past and you go, wow, that's, you know, Secretary Generals of the UN, Prime Ministers, Royalty, whatever. And there's me, some lad from Wigan. And as it happened that year, completely by chance, Wigan not only got to the final, but they beat Man City and won the cup. So I ended up handing the cup to Wigan Athletic, my hometown team. And so those kind of things happening are so serendipitous. They're so strange. But but again, it's sort of like you, you, you do pinch yourself afterwards. But I don't think while you're playing, I mean, certainly while I was playing, you know, first of all, we were concentrating on trying to get the, port, the, the sport established. Then we were trying to keep keep qualifying for Europeans and Worlds. Then we were trying to get it to be a Paralympic sport. Then we qualified in 2004, but then we couldn't go because the various uh, individual country FAs couldn't agree on a format that we could go with. 
until eventually, I think 2007, we were 54 seconds from not getting to the semifinals of the European Championships. And if that had have happened, we would never have gone to Beijing and therefore probably would have never gone to London. And Darren Harris scored, a, scored the equaliser against Italy. We went on to beat France in the semis and got through to Beijing. But there's moments in your career, like you're fighting, as you know, you know, you're fighting for every next opportunity in the current one you're in. So you don't really think about what's gone. But I assure you, when you come to retirement, which, which you know, as the CEO of the British Paralympic Association, I hope is in a very long time. <laughs> don't worry, Dave, I've got a few years left in me. <laughs> I'm glad you have. But uh, no, seriously, you know, when you get there, you will look back and you know, hopefully you'll get there at a point like I was where you're entirely comfortable with your decision to retire. But you look back and it all hits you very, very hard. Um, and and you think, wow, you know, and then you start to think about all the influences and all the people that had such an incredible impact on you getting there. Because again, as an athlete, you can only focus on the day-to-day -day and and you almost get into a routine. But when I think of some of the coaches that I've walked into the gym and they've kind of not known there's a blind guy turning up and people like Tony Sefton at the University of Hertfordshire who didn't get any notification that I was coming. He just said, we've got this athlete from the FA coming down. Can you look after him? And had to think on his feet and just, you know, have such a, ended up having such a positive influence on me. It's a, it, You look back at all those people. And of course, as, as, as you also know, Hannah, you know, family around you, you know, from my, my parents when I was a kid to my, to my, you know, my wife and my two young kids when I was still playing, it was, their support was absolutely incredible. Oh, absolutely. And I think the most magical thing is like watching you mention all those moments, you just had the biggest smile on your face, remembering <laughs> everything that you've done. I like, how important do you find things like being put in the Hall of Fame, things like, you know, getting to that FA Cup final and handing down that trophy? As, as para-athletes, I think we do still struggle a little bit um, to, I don't know, like get those outside, uh, I can't think of the word, like those outside recognitions. Recognition, yeah. Yeah. And you go and you win the medals and you come back and you, you want to be excited. Like how important do you think those other recognitions are outside of the actual performances that you put in? Yeah, I think um, it's a really good point. Um, you know, let's be really clear about this. And I've put this front and center of the role I do now that we as disabled people do not live with equity in our lives compared with the average person. We are constantly facing um, challenges, difficulties, discrimination, choose whatever word you wish, but we don't live in an equitable world. Um, and I think the way I would describe Paralympic sport during my existence in it, which is 1987 to, 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 to now, I think it's gone through what I would call sympathizing people feeling sorry for us and to, to empathizing to then accepting to enjoying and finally consuming and i hope and i know you've said something recently about paris i really really hope that paris is a is a is a reaffirmation of that consuming and that massive public um excitement about about the games but i think in 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 general life that journey has not has hardly even begun. You know, if you look at education, you look at employment, 
you look at socialization and, 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 finan and financial um, independence and health outcomes and wherever you look, transport, built environment, wherever you look, we don't live with that same level of equity. Uh, and, 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 you know, someone like myself, someone like yourself is not, is often forgotten, not considered, not voiced in any way, shape or form, directly or indirectly, when things are being created. And for me, I think, you know, as an athlete, I was constantly striving to be taken seriously. You know, it wasn't until 2000 that the English FA realized that blind football was something they should have an interest in when they realized that football was for everybody and not just the domain of male professional athletes. And so it's a journey for me. And I think the journey that I went on on the pitch was a constant, constant felt like a constant uphill battle, but it was one that when it finished for me was the moment the program went professional, the moment that the squad started to be based at St. George's Park. And I really felt that we'd got somewhere and that's still true. That's still true today. And, and that, and, 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 and that, and that carries on. I think what really hit me hard this year was when I saw the ONS statistics around COVID and I found out that um, as a blind person, I was 1.4 times more likely to die in COVID because of my sight loss, no other factor. Uh, and, as a, and as a male between 31 and 62, I was about eight times more likely to die. And it's when you see statistics like that, it hits you in the guts, you know, because you realize that, that is the definition of the inequity we face into. So, so for me, you know, what we see around athletes and, and how athletes feel about how they're recognized is probably just a bit of a wider comment on life. And I think we can't take it for granted what we've achieved on the field of play. And we need to carry on really delivering on that because that's our currency, that's our gold dust that then says, okay, if you're comfortable with us living our lives in that part of what we do, then why not the rest? How far do you think London 2012 kind of pushed that narrative? I've spoken to a lot of people, um, especially around like the superhuman aspect of of London and then Rio. Um, I personally loved the whole superhuman campaign going into London. It was my it was my first game, so I genuinely did feel like an absolute superhero getting to represent my country. Um, and I, I feel like because London was my first games, it was the biggest, it was the best, it changed everything. Um, but actually, the more people I speak to, the more, I guess, people that weren't athletes there, they saw it in a completely different light. How did you feel about everything that happened around London? Yeah, I think um, there's a few things about London. I mean, firstly, let's be really frank. That was the first time that the Paralympics got such crowds, got such engagement. Most Paralympic athletes, definitely myself, have been used to playing to a much smaller audience, um, if any audience at all. And so it was absolutely game-changing in terms of, as I say, I think you know, people have gone on this journey from uh, to, to finally enjoying and consuming disability sport and para sport. And I think that is something we is, is, is something we can't take for granted. But it's a box ticked in terms of that's the standard. That's where it, that's where it needs to be. And these sports are hugely enjoyable and can be consumed as elite sport. So I think that side of it. I think where I probably struggle is that I don't understand why why the society can understand that on a sports pitch but can't understand it in a classroom in a workplace or or in a social situation I just don't 
understand why one doesn't cross over to the other. And so that's why I'm determined to continue to fight to make to make that happen. As regards the superhumans thing, I think it's really, really interesting. I think there needed to be a certain amount of outrage. There needed to be a certain amount of of, of kind of kind of uh, edgy content to get people thinking differently. And the superhumans, as you know, was all about, you know, Usain Bolt is a superhuman because he could run under meters in 9.6 seconds. And the point about superhumans was that as disabled elite athletes, we were superhuman. Um, and I think that message has got edgier over the years with the 2016, you know, yes, I can. And then the 2020, which got even more edgier. And I think, and, and, and I hope, and I haven't seen anything on it yet, but I hope 2024 will be even edgier than that because, you know, it should be. It should be, should be asking serious questions about how society operates and how we as disabled people are treated and um, portrayed within society. And the other thing I'd say finally on that is that, you know, I think it's really, really important to understand that there isn't a homogenous, a correct answer to issues around disability. You know, we've seen some recent interesting stuff around the, the Paralympic TikTok, and it's, it's okay for there to be more than one view on that. It's okay for people to disagree because, you know, there, as I say, there isn't one single homogenous answer. And it feels, I'm, I'm entirely comfortable with some people liking it and some people not liking it. Um, but it needs to get people thinking. And if we can get people to question why is it, how have they got comfortable with elite sport, but not comfortable with elite employment or elite education or elite health? And I think those are the questions I am certainly going to continue to ask as a disabled person myself and representing disabled people within the Paralympic movement. Can I just vote for you to be Prime Minister like <laughs> next time it comes round? That'd be amazing. <laughs> well, you know, we'll have to see whether there's a, whether, whether, whether there's a vacancy. <laughs> well, it wasn't a no, so that's good. <laughs> I'd never say no to you, Hannah. I'm not brave. I'm not brave enough. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm not that scary. Trust me. <laughs> you mentioned there 2012 being, you know, the biggest crowd that you'd ever compete in front of, I'd ever compete in front of. It was incredible. I'm just wondering, how did that impact the game of blind football? Obviously, you rely heavily on sound to play the game. Um, and I definitely couldn't hear myself speak in the middle of that stadium. So how did you as a team deal with that? Yeah, sorry about that. Me and the football team actually snuck in for your race and we were cheering like crazy. So that was our fault. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, we, I don't know how we got past security, but we did. Um, yeah, so I, I think actually it adds to the sense of theatre because... If you think about tennis or you think about something like gymnastics when someone's doing a really complicated routine and everyone's got to be quiet, but then there's this sort of crescendo of noise at the point at which the big moment happens, either the finishing the routine or the finishing of the point. Um, and what you kind of got around the five-a-side football pitch, you know, four and a half thousand, five thousand people are, are stacked around it, um, was you got this sense of anticipation about what was to come. So they knew they had to be quiet. But as you were running towards the goal, I mean, there's one goal I scored against Spain, which uh, unfortunately got me slightly ridiculed on the last leg because I ended up hugging the referee in celebration. <laughs> um, but um, 
But when I listen back to that video, you hear, as I beat the first man, you hear this kind of little rumble and then I beat the second man and you, and you sort of hear getting people moving to the edge of their seats and then the goal goes in and everyone just explodes. So I think in many ways, it actually becomes quite a spectacle because um, yes, the players do need to hear the ball, so that's fine and everyone's quiet. But that sense of expectation and that absolute relief when the goal goes in the back of the net and you can absolutely go crazy and celebrate, you know, it's... Um, it's really good. But I'll tell you a funny story about this. We were in a penalty shootout against China and um, the announcer said, uh, I just want to let everybody know that um, when the penalties are being taken, you just need to be very careful because this is a very hard ball. And if you know if you happen to get hit by it, it will hurt. So and I turned around to my goalkeeper and I said, I don't understand why you're saying that because like, the, the, the closest seat is about 20 foot off the ground. And then it goes way back after that. I thought, why is he saying that stupid thing? Anyway, stepped up to take my penalty, smashed it over the crossbar, straight into the crowd. So, you know, <laughs> never diss the announcer is my advice because it went straight in there and hit somebody quite hard. <laughs> <laughs> That's brutal. <laughs> you know what? You're going to be so scared now when I go and watch more blind football. I'm going to be... I mean, I'm pretty flinchy anyway. So now I'm going to remember that and be like, oh, I'm going to be in the danger zone. <laughs> Yeah, the, the Disability Cup, if you ever get to do that again, just uh, keep keep yourself well away from the goal area is, is my advice. <laughs> well, I'm already signed up to, to come and present it this year. Um, and I Brilliant. Was gonna, I'll be there. Well, I'll be there too. And I was going to move on to that. Like, What more needs to be done to bring more people into blind football? Is something like the BT Disability Cup, is that making a big difference to the sport? I think it absolutely is. I think when I first went to St. George's Park and saw the six finals being played across one weekend, televised, televised with, televised with BSL, televised with audio live audio description, it was an absolute game changer for me. And I think, you know, the one thing we can, we can do that I think really practically reaches out to people and gets more people involved is showing that something's possible, you know, for me, I had a couple of role models when I was a, when I was a kid uh, going through school, particularly when I went to secondary school, who showed me what was possible as a blind footballer. They showed me the level of skill you could get to um, and, and, you know, and what you could aspire to. And whilst it wasn't, as I say, an international sport at that time, it was just there in terms of the level you could get to and the level of competition you, you could play. And, and so to have that across a whole weekend at the home of, of English football and to have it televised on a national broadcaster across you know the entire United Kingdom. Um, I think that's just so, so powerful because you know if you can see it, you can be it. And to know that those role models are existing across uh, across blind football, across partially sighted football, across deaf football, you know power chair football, amputee football uh, and, and cerebral palsy football. It's an incredible thing to witness six finals in two days. And and yeah, I think I think anything we can do to show people the opportunity, you know, whether they choose to take it up or not, will be down to to to, to those people and the support network they have around them and, and that kind of thing. But showing the opportunity I think is super important. Absolutely. I can't I can't say it better myself. If anyone gets a chance to come down and uh, attend the BT Disability Cup, uh, it's at the end of June, last weekend in June. And it is just an absolute phenomenon. Like, I'm not afraid to sit here and say I'm not, I'm not a massive football fan. I don't know. I definitely don't know as much as you, Dave. But um, I've learned a lot in my few years there. And it is, it's stunning sport. And that's what we want to sell in it. We want to just show people that 
It is sport. No matter who's playing, it's fantastic to watch. Yeah. And I want people to be passionate about Paralympic sport. You know, we need to ensure that we are getting, you know, we're really getting more fans and delivering performances for those fans. And as I say, getting people to consume what we do, you know, as absolutely massively important in their life as it's important in our life. And that's where the crowds will come from. And that's where the, the, the future athletes will come from. So, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Is that something that you're going to push now that you are the new CEO of Paralympics TV? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, and I think, um, you know, we have to we have to be very bold as well in our messaging and we have to be very bold in the material we get out there. Um, and dare I say, we need to be slightly edgy as well in terms of uh, getting people to question their thinking question their actions, questioning, you know, um, how people are around disabled people in the various environments I've spoken about today. Um, but yeah, we have to go grab this opportunity. It's not something we can expect to just carry on forever. As I said, we can't take any of the sporting success for granted. It's sheer hard work and professionalism and terrific organization across the athletes, the NGBs, the national disability organizations, um, yeah, the st my staff here at the at, at Paralympics GB who do a phenomenal job in getting the team ready. Um, but the way I think about it, Hannah, is it's it's a virtuous circle, really. That you know we need the performances out there on the field of play to continue to drive the message about our sport and about our people participating in that sport. But we also we also need to realise that the athletes who represent us spend most of their life away from the field of play. And therefore, what happens in that wider life can only have a, it must have a massive impact on what happens on the field of play. So it would be totally disingenuous of us as, a, as an organization to just concentrate on the sport because we have to ally up with our athletes, with other organizations around us to point out the difficulties we've spoken about on this today and, and get answers to it, you know, and to drive that, that equity and drive that better world for disabled people. And so I think for me, you know, I have huge ambition about what we can achieve in sport, but I probably have even bigger ambition about what we can do with partners, with uh, with companies, with 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 public sector, with government, um, to drive the equity that we all demand. And I think we are at a stage now where we are not asking for it; we're demanding it. And it honestly fills me with excitement that we have an ex-athlete, an ex-para-athlete at the helm of our sport. You know, I think it's something that potentially has been missing for a long time. I mean, what what made you think that you could do it? Because I don't know if I could do it. I'm just an athlete. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, I'm very fortunate or unfortunate, whichever way you look at it, to have had a very, um, very mixed background. And that's because when I was doing my sport, I was also doing education and then working because I never, I never got onto an elite program. I never got, I never had to make that decision. Uh, uh, and the moment that decision needed to be made was the moment I was retiring. So I always joke that the, 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 the day they decided to pay footballers was the day I retired. So that's uh, that's a bit unfortunate, <laughs> isn't it? They were just avoiding you. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly right. But uh, but what that meant was I was able to have a 24, 24 year career. In banking, I worked for HSBC for eight years across various um, business manager and branch manager roles. Uh, I, uh, I worked with Royal Bank Scotland for three years in the business development roles. And then I worked for Clydesdale and Yorkshire Bank, which is now Virgin Money, 
um, where I, I my last job there was running the customer banking operation across uh, London and the Southeast. And so when I decided to move into the charity sector, I'd had a huge amount of experience already. And then I went to be chief operating officer at the RNIB, which was four and a half years I thoroughly enjoyed you know, um, with a team of around 700 people in various settings, from factory settings, producing accessible content right through to eye clinics across, you know, 200, 200 or so sites across various hospitals. And so I was very fortunate to get, you know, that leadership experience and that, and that corporate experience alongside the wider understanding I'd got um, from the Paralympic movement through being an athlete, being chair of the Athlete Commission, um, and then also as a non-exec on the board. So it's a probably a really weird combination of, 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 of circumstances that led to me being in a position where I felt I could apply. Um, but I could not be more delighted to have got the job. I mean, I would truly regard it as a dream job for me because it brings all of the strands of my life together in, in one place. I'm terrifically passionate about how we've got here and where we're at but I'm probably even more passionate about where I think we're going and the importance of being very, very clear on, on, on what that looks like. And as I say, you know, driving those performances, those best prepared performances on the pit, on the pitch, but really, really making sure that we are being authentic and, um, and keeping it real off the pitch in terms of, you know, demanding that level of equity and that better world for disabled people that we all know, is just and fair and, and what we need. Absolutely. When did you fit trading in amongst all that? Because that sounds like a really full-time life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, certainly in the last four years, post-Beijing, it was it was super difficult. Um, I was training six days a week. Um, I was uh, working five days a week. Um, I had two young kids, um, you know, uh, and, you know, I was away, away a lot. I mean, first of all, my employer was very, very good to me in terms of extra holiday, um, but it was very difficult as a, for a family because, you know, you had to be together to train, as you well know, so you, you're traveling all the time as well to get to training, not just going going training, It's you've got to get there. Um, various tournaments around Europe and around the world as well. Um, so it was, it was actually a tough four years, and I, I always joke that there's this old meatloaf song, two out of three ain't bad, and I always joked that, you know, I could generally manage to get two things going well at one time, but never three. Um, <laughs> but you juggle, don't you? you? You juggle, you plan, you have to you have to work through, try and work through scenarios. But one of the things I'm really, really clear on is I always believe there are choices and there are sacrifices. And, and, and for me, athletes make choices and people around you make sacrifices. Um, and, you know, I really... You know, I hear a lot of people say, oh, I, you know, I sacrificed a lot to get here. And, and, and I think I always preferred to think about it in terms of what other people sacrificed. Because in my life, that was absolutely true. I was making positive choices to go do things that suited me and got me to where I wanted to be. Whereas the people around me in my workplace, in my home life, and my friendship groups, everyone, they were making the sacrifices to help me get there. Um, and so it was tough. And, um, you know, that's why I think I'm really, really pleased that most um elite athletes these days don't have to go through those challenges because you know you you trying to work on and, and and do your sport at the same time is very very difficult i think where we need to continue to work harder is if if, if people have missed out on that side of their life for a period of time because they're performing we need to work harder on helping people trans transition 
um, you know, and it's brilliant to see you, you know, doing various different things as well as your, that fits in with your training and fits in with your competitions, such as you know, the TV stuff and all that. It's brilliant to see it because, you know, if you weren't doing that, then, you know, you'd come to some point in the future and you'd be saying, well, what do I do? You know, um, so I think we've got to get really good at that because I was very fortunate, um, as I say, to have that opportunity to create that business career alongside my sports career. And I'm very fortunate that they've, they've come together. Do you ever wish that uh, you could have had the support that we have now? Or do you feel lucky that you were almost forced to to do the banking and, and find that balance? Because I think balance is a, it's a thing that a lot of people ask athletes about. It's a thing that I am terrible at. I have no work-life balance at all. Um, and realistically, you know, my life is my sport. But do you ever look back and wish that you'd had the chance for your sport just to be everything? Yeah, I do, actually. I do. I really wish I'd done that. Um, I actually I actually think I could have been a pretty good athlete. Um, I, When I came into athletics, I was, you know, I have away from competition, you know, when I was about 19, 20 years old, run around just under 12 seconds for 100 metres in a guided running situation and, um, you know, could have run 400 metres in about 55 seconds, which for blind athletes at the time were, you know, that was that was pretty good. And then um, I kind of, because I was at university and because I sort of wandered away from it really, and I wonder actually if I'd gone into that at that time, and that sport was pretty advanced at that time, I think I might have taken a completely different route. But with football, I think it did take far too long for us to get into the position where we had what you would call an elite programme. And I think if we got to that earlier, then I think we would have been, I mean, you know, I'm super proud of what we achieved. You know, on a personal level, I was I got five golden boots. On a, on a team level, we got five European silver medals and we're extraordinarily close in 2009 to winning the European Championships, leading 2-1 with three minutes to go. Um, but I just think if we'd gone elite... Not that you're bitter. Oh, God, it's the worst worst night of my life, that. But, but <laughs> honestly, I think if we'd gone more professional earlier, then I think we would have achieved some pretty pretty incredible results because we had an incredible group of lads that were very, very talented and, and, and you know, potentially could have done that. But again, no regrets, really. Um, as I say, the reason why I'm sat here today is because of a unique set of circumstances that I've been blessed with um, to get to a certain position. So, you know, you could say shoulda, coulda, woulda, but um, from my perspective, uh, I'd have loved to have been part of that programme, but I'm entirely satisfied and happy with, with where I am now, for sure. I'm sure we'll take you on now, you know, just start training. There'll be space. <laughs> <laughs> I think it'd definitely be uh, it'd definitely be a different event to the ones I did Um yeah, I think I think actually, to be really honest, I think I was actually quite frightened of 400 meters because it 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 didn't come without. Pain. Oh, it's my favorite event exactly and, uh, because of that. I think the 400 is like it's, oh, tactically the ouch. strongest athletes do the four. I think if you can do a four well, which I think I can. <laughs> <laughs> the stats would tend to suggest so. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, I'm i going to leave that one to you because that's a very controversial thing you've just said with all the other athletes doing the other distances. But but um, <laughs> but certainly I, I found it the hardest. I mean, I've done I've done four London marathons just for fun. Uh, that's not and, fun. And 400 metres is very hard. <laughs> so I got a bit scared of it, I reckon, um, which probably was another reason that turned me off athletics and I went and did goalball instead. But um, 
No, I think I'm very. I'm, I'm. I've landed really, really happily where I am. I did throw the hammer once, by the way, for Wigan Harriers. Uh, you can imagine oh, the look on a the man face. Of many talents. Well, you can imagine the look on the faces of the judges when the blind guy turned up to the tournament at Blackpool, <laughs> and uh, he said, "Yeah, I'm here to throw the hammer." And like the guys, you're going to do what? Like, yeah, I'm going to throw the hammer. <laughs> and and the even funnier thing is that I've, I actually won the the competition that day, uh, the class. Um, that's because basically every single club had just sent a random person to throw the hammer to try and get some points. So, uh, yeah, that was quite good fun too. How did you know when to let go? Well, that's a very interesting question. So, um, obviously, there's the cage, but you're spinning round and round and you're like, well, yeah, where is the gap, you know? So, the first two I threw hit the cage and I think the guy at that point is thinking, God almighty, what's this guy playing now? <laughs> And then I got one out to about 22 meters, I think, in the end. And I was like, yeah, come on, got it out of the cage. Um, and it ended up being the winning distance. So it, it seems it wasn't only me that struggled to get the hammer out of the cage. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you've got to be in it to win it, you know. Why not exactly. just give it a crack? Give it a go. <laughs> and that's the important message, isn't it? Like, we, we need now to work hard on giving more... Young people, old people, everybody, opportunity to give sport a go. Yeah, oh, for sure. I mean, when I was at RNIB, I was involved in the Sea Sport Differently campaign. And obviously, you were at the launch with me of, of Everybody Moves. And, um, you know, I, I know the statistics very well from a sight loss perspective. And that is that 54% of blind and partially sighted people do less than half an hour's exercise per week. And, um, and I think you know, the statistics we we launched with on Everybody Moves were, were similarly um, difficult to read because of all the added benefits of doing exercise. I mean, let's not, let's not even call it sport. Let's call it movement. You know, all the added benefits of doing that versus all the downsides of not doing it. And this is not me blaming people. This is about opportunity. It's about uh, encouraging people to understand the opportunity um, exists and. I think there's sometimes this misapprehension that that you know Paralympic sport can place a bit of pressure on other disabled people who aren't into sport, who don't care about sport, or don't want to do sport. But really, it's no different to you know the um, the athletes who represent the British Olympic Association having some wider appeal to somebody who just fancies going out for a jog or doing a yoga class, you know. Uh, at the elite end of the sport we've got people doing some incredible things but it's not intended to put pressure on anybody it's just to show that that is what's possible if you choose to put your mind to it as an elite athlete but there's an opportunity for everybody to get involved and everybody to to move as the campaign says and what we hope to do is reach out to many local clubs organizations gyms, swimming pools, wherever, whatever establishment it happens to be and ensure it's an inclusive, equitable environment in which people can just go along and, and, and do whatever suits them. What advice would you give to, to anyone listening really that maybe isn't active but is wondering how they can get active? Yeah, I mean, definitely if you have access to the internet or you're able to get access to the internet, then definitely go and look at the Everybody Moves pages because there is a is a... I mean, the things that when I... I went in under my own postcode, as you do, and I found out things that not even I knew that were in my local area. I've done the same, um, yeah. I, I was mean, really surprised. Who knew that I had the opportunity to play walking netball, for example? So, oh, you know. Come on, it, that's your next sport. Do it. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> my, uh, that's my uh, it's a toss up between that and golf now to see what I go to next. But um, <laughs> no, but I think, I think, 
I mean, first of all, don't feel any any pressure about this. Don't feel that anyone's judging. Uh, it's about the choice that you have to do what you want to do. And if that is simply doing something within within your own four walls, you know, you essentially need a, a space of about you know one meter by two meters to to do exercise. Um, and that doesn't require any equipment, any clubs. Doesn't even require going out of the house. Um, but there are terrific social benefits, I think, and health benefits, and wider mental health benefits of being around people and, and 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 enjoying their company and enjoying the activity and enjoying that camaraderie, which I would certainly encourage people to to take advantage of. And and the more we do it, then hopefully the more that will be built into the way people provide these opportunities, and the more people experience um, working with. Um, uh, disabled people in various different environments, hopefully the easier it will become for all of us. Absolutely. What were the biggest barriers for you getting involved with sport? And are they still there? Which is a question I hate to ask because I hope not, but the answer is always yes, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I think the barriers are, the, the, the barriers are there, um, uh, can be there pretty much always. Um, and I think what we try and do is, is, is give people the tools to break them down. I mean, for me, I always think I've been terrifically fortunate in any kind of, you know, when I went to do athletics at Wigan Harriers, I came across a coach that was just loving the opportunity to do something different and just integrated me into his running group straight away. And everybody who took part in it, which was, which you know, was rugby league players, Olympic runners, just took me under their wing and just enjoyed that different element to what was going on. Um, and so for me, I was very fortunate with that. Now, you know, I think the hardest thing in the world is to get a rejection. Um, and I'm the kind of person that if someone does that to me, I will say, well, you know, I'm not going to accept that. But for a lot of people, that initial negative experience is enough to turn you away and never make you want to go back again. Um, and so I think, um, I don't think that I have faced into any particular direct barriers of everyone say anyone saying like no that's not possible um but i have faced into it occasionally in the workplace uh, and i've definitely faced it into it in wider life so i do know what it feels like and you know i don't have a guide dog at the moment because i'm waiting for a new one but um you know the amount of times i've been refused entry to restaurants and and, and public spaces because i've got a guide dog with me which of course is totally against the law You've, it makes you feel terrible. It makes you feel less than. It makes you feel awful inside. And, you know, as I say, I, I tend to, to stand up for myself and act self-advocate and, and, and get the decision overturned. But that's not for everybody. So rather than, I think the way we've got to look at it is we've got to proactively take those barriers down before they even get the chance to block. Um, because not everybody is going to is going to come up against the barrier and want to knock it over. And, and no, no one should feel pressurized to do that. You know, it's um, it's hard enough sometimes to get out of the house and go try something, and to get a knockback is so debilitating at that point. So I think we've just got to keep reaching out into society, into the kind of places that people will go, and make sure that that you know they are inclusive places where where people feel don't feel threatened, feel welcomed, feel part of a, a club, a society, a team, um, and then. And then we don't need to worry about the barriers. So, yeah, that's my that's my aim is to continue to knock those barriers over before they block anybody from doing something they want to do. Well, keep smashing them down because there's definitely plenty of them. But you've spoken the whole way through this interview about 
plenty of different people who have, you know, from Ron putting the ball bearings in the ball to athletics club coaches just saying, yeah, like, yes, come and, come and be part of what we do. How much have you had to, I guess, how much have you relied on that support from, from your family, from your friends, but also from, from people outside of that to, to be as successful an athlete as you are? Oh, hugely. Yeah, hugely. I mean, the one person I didn't mention, and uh, it, it killed me if I didn't mention him, of course, was my football coach for 17 years, Tony Larkin, ex-professional footballer, just a wonderful guy who just believed in me, believed in all of us, and really took coaching blind footballers professionally really seriously. Um, and so there's so, so many people over the years that you know you can name, and particularly, as I said, Mum and dad who ferried me around the country, my wife and the kids who put up with me not being around and and supported me in what I was doing, the various coaches I've come across, teammates, physios, particularly towards the end of my career, spent quite a lot of time on the <laughs> physio couch. Um, but yeah, I think uh, I think you know if I look at one person that um, it, it would be um, you know it would be Tony who picked me up at 25 years old and said, "Wow, you know, it's now time for you to be coached." And um, it's a bit strange to get to 25 and not be coached, but because of the amount of football I'd played rather than schoolwork I'd done, <laughs> it was, um, <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was kind of ready for it. And then, you know, to travel all around Europe and all around the world playing football for 17 years. You know, played football in Rio, in Sao Paulo, in Buenos Aires, in right across, you know, right across Europe from Turkey, Greece, Germany, Spain, France. Uh, played in some Everywhere. really iconic places. Uh, it's just been absolutely... <laughs> It was absolutely phenomenal. I loved every minute of it. But yeah, there's been a lot of people that made it happen, for sure. What are some of your favourite memories from the football pitch? What's your favourite goal? What's the best goal you've ever scored? Ah, well, so there's, there's three here. So the best goal I ever scored, the only person in the Paralympic movement, I think, that can remember it is Andrew Parsons. And that's because I scored <laughs> it in the World Championships in Sao Paulo in 1998, where he was the tournament director. And there's no video footage of it, but I promise you that I had my back to the defender. I flicked it over his head and volleyed it past the goalkeeper on the other side. We did lose 3-1 to Argentina that day, but that's my best ever goal. And nobody anywhere has got footage of it. Oh, that's good. Um, Pretty impressive though. Yeah, a classic Paralympics thing, isn't it? That, it all, you know, all the stuff in the 90s is no one's got, no one had a big video camera to take a, you know, these days you'd just be on a phone somewhere, wouldn't it? But uh, Literally, yeah. The second but it does one, all get lost. This, uh, exactly. Well, the second one would be, I went to 100 goals with a hat-trick against Germany. So that was quite nice. That was in the European Championships in 2009. Uh, and then the final one, of course, is the goal I scored against Spain. Um, which, which is the one that there's the most footage about, uh, A, because I did beat three players and score with my right foot, which I normally use for standing on. So from that perspective, it was a good goal. But then I went and hugged the ref in celebration. So that's why everyone watches it, because they just enjoy that moment, I think. Clark, the Great Britain skipper. It dates back to 1996, pursued by three Spanish defenders and drilled it into the far corner. A terrific strike. Best goal we've seen so far in this tournament. It's so nice that you can describe them in so much detail. I get asked that question all the time and I'm just I'm just blank. I'm like, oh, I don't I like I don't know how you choose from all the moments. How do you choose just three goals out of hundred and forty four? No, wait, hundred well however many it was. Hundred and twenty eight. <laughs> 
No, 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 it's fine. Um, yeah, well, probably because I don't remember <laughs> most of them. Uh, I did score. F- I remember scoring five against Greece once, which was uh, a pretty big moment. We won five one, and I scored all five. So that was um, that was quite a strange day. I remember that day particularly because we were playing in forty two degrees centigrade in half past eleven in Thessaloniki in in in, in northern Greece. So that was an interesting day. Um, yeah, I mean, you remember you remember snippets. You remember I remember scoring a goal against Spain where, you know, again, pretty similar, picked the ball up around the halfway line, beat three players and scored, got it back to 3-3. And that point was really critical in moving on. But yeah, I mean, I mean, you must remember some of the ones. You, I mean, you must remember going over the line in 2012. That must be, you know, with 80,000 people behind you. That must have been a pretty incredible moment. I remember moment. that pretty clearly. Yeah, that was a, yeah. it was a pretty standout moment, though, let's be fair. It was a pretty yeah. big moment. Oh, it's huge, you know. As I say, we were making a racket. So, you know, we were the loudest <laughs> people in the stadium, definitely. So what is the one memory that you want to have? You know, I know you've only just started the job of CEO, but in 10, 20 years' time, what do you want to come away and say that you achieved? I think for me, it's 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 twofold. Um, the first thing is that I want our um, our Paralympics GB team to continue to outperform the world, notwithstanding the fact that we know that the competition, the level of competition, the investment in the competition worldwide is going up and up and up. The standards are going up and up and up. You've proved that with about 49 world records this year, haven't you? That uh, the standards going up and up and up. So it's getting harder, but I want to continue to outperform. And the reason why I want to do that is because that gives us what I describe as the gold dust that we can that we can spread onto the wider social issues. Um, and we're in the middle at the moment of creating some milestones that we want to see as part of our social impact programs. Um, but for me, and I know you've spoken about this very, very clearly in, in, in your experiences, you know, for me, it's going to be things like knowing that every, um, knowing that every school child with, with a disability will not be excluded from sport. Um, knowing that every adult has the opportunity with a disability to, to do to do sport and activity, and then fight in wider life, you know, knowing that we've worked with partners who are working on this every day right across the disability community to make sure that the educational and the employment opportunities and the access to technology and the access to to, to, to positive health out, health outcomes are, are are equitable as well as the built environment and. Um, and access to transport. Now, these are all huge things. So we are we as Paralympics GB, we we need to partner up, we need to ally up with people to kind of use that those special moments and that special gold dust that we have to add our our, our voice to those debates and add our voice to those actions. But for me it's it is a I, I want to be known, I want the organization to be known for two things. Firstly that we carried on achieving fantastic results on the pitch and off the pitch we played a leading role in making sure that disabled people uh, were treated as full parts of parts of parts of society and able to live the life of their choosing in the way they want to live it and when i say they i mean me people like me and uh, people like you amen to that i love that do you hope that with you taking this role on you'll encourage other ex-athletes retired athletes to to come back and take on these these bigger roles that are 
that, that have ultimately made our lives, have made our dreams come true. But without those people at the top, we would never have done this. Do you hope that more athletes take those jobs on? Yeah, I, I don't only I don't just hope that more athletes take those jobs on. I really want to positively help more athletes take those jobs on. So whether that is through paid internship programs, whether that's through um, pathway opportunities that exist um, through Games Times roles and other roles, um, you'll have noticed through our recruitment processes recently that we've brought on some athlete ambassadors and we've brought on a variety of different roles around the games that are intended to give people those opportunities to get more involved. Uh, and then probably the final thing on, on on that is I want people feel to feel part of a movement. And so, you know, I haven't quite determined with colleagues what this will look like, but I think there needs to be a way of everybody who's ever represented Paralympics GB to still feel part of that movement. Because I know that when I was finished and I was done and, you know, you kind of walk away and, and, and you know, I think lots of people would love to stay involved in one way or another. So I think we've got to find a way of, of ensuring that people do still feel part of that group, part of that movement, part of that network, alumni, call it what you will. Um, because at the end of the day, every single one of those people has been part of where we've got to today. You know, um, the, the pioneers, I had the pleasure in the opening ceremony in London 2012 of handing the torch to Margaret Morn, who, who, who sadly, you know, um, sadly no longer with us, but to hand the torch to the lady who won the first ever gold medal in 1960 and for her to light the cauldron was just an incredible moment for me because you look at that journey to what it is today and it, it's quite incredible and if that's what we can achieve across those 60 odd years then you know who knows what we can achieve in the future so for me Milan, LA, Brisbane it's all about that dual target of continuing to perform on the field of play, but working damn hard to ensure that life away from the field of play becomes far, far better for disabled people. Well, with you at the top, I truly believe that we are definitely going to get there and we're going to be the strongest team heading into Paris and beyond. I'm not going to take any more of your time because you've been talking away to me for ages, but I've really, really loved this conversation. It's been so insightful, so amazing to hear about the start of your sport, but also, you know, what's going to happen next? You've not just left it lying where it was. You've come back from the, the biggest games. London 2012 was the biggest games. And we're going to make Paris, hopefully, even bigger. So thank you so much for talking to me and yeah, I think people are going to really enjoy this conversation. No, I've got to say, talking to you is not as good as dancing with you, but we'll deal with that another day. <laughs> no, really. So many questions. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll leave it on a cliffhanger. I really hope everyone enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. It was fantastic to speak to David about all his experiences, and I really hope he might come back on the podcast soon. For more information on Paralympics GB, head to paralympics.org.uk and follow us on the socials at Paralympics GB. Also, don't forget to hit subscribe or follow wherever it is that you're listening to the show, as there'll be more shows, more guests and more stories from behind the scenes in Paralympic sport to come. Thanks for listening and see you next time. The Paralympics GB podcast with Hannah Cockcroft.